It's a privilege to be back with you guys. Um, I bring greetings from Providence Baptist Church. Um, still see so many faces that still miss who used to be in Sunday school classes and in the services. He did create, create some space, um, which we appreciate, um, but it's filling up quickly. So uh, we bring you guys greetings. This evening, I want to talk to you guys about the idea, the biblical idea of the law and gospel, specifically law and gospel theology. And I also want us to see the contrast between both law and gospel. And then finally, we'll look at how to apply the law and the gospel in our everyday lives. And so the law and the gospel for our purposes is this biblical idea that there are two great covenant heads that represent all of humanity. There's Adam and there's Christ. And that there are economies distinct economies underneath these two great covenant heads that have specific conditions and requirements and promises according to the covenant represented by those two great covenant heads, and that those two economies have an impact on the posterities or the people underneath both. So essentially, you're either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are not under both of these two great covenant heads. And I want to show you guys that that's a biblical idea. And I also want to look at the distinction. So when I say distinction, I mean a contrast between the law as a covenant and the conditions of obedience for life and the gospel as a covenant, which is pure promise according to the work of Christ that he's given us eternal life. So when I say distinction, there are two lines of thoughts as we go through this. And you hear that word over and over again that I want us to avoid. One, when I say distinction, I do not mean a distinction between the old covenant, that is, the covenant with David, Moses, Abraham, versus the new covenant. That's not what I mean. And we'll see that there's law and gospel underneath the old covenant economy and the system. What I also don't mean is, when I say distinction, is that these two covenants are in opposition to one another. They're not. Who gave the law covenant? Who gave the covenant to Adam? It was God. It was good when it was given. Who gave us the new covenant? It was God. They are not opposed to one another, but they are distinct. And if we get these things wrong, we create a lot of havoc in our lives, with our theology, and even in our hearts. So with those two things in mind, I want us to consider um, that the distinction is actually between the law, broadly speaking, as a covenant, and the gospel, strictly speaking, as pure promise. That's the distinction, Adam versus Christ. Does that make sense? And this biblical, this biblical concept, brothers and sisters, is not something new, but rather it has been discussed throughout all of church history. I actually believe that this is a post-enlightenment thing, the, po- the effects of the enlightenment, or my hermeneutics professor, uh, Richard Barcelos, calls it the endarkenment. But it's an effect on that, on, on, on Christendom, on Christianity and how we live our daily lives. Because before the Enlightenment, this was a normal part of church life. And it wasn't unique to Reformed Protestants. We see it in Lutheranism, Dutch Reform, in other co- contexts, Baptist life, historically. It was very important. And it was understood in most churches um, who named the name of Christ. Let me quote a few teachers from church histories to, to, to prove this point. Augustine, during his great battle with Pelagius, said this. He says, 
Thus the law and grace are so different that the law is not only useless, but is actually an obstacle in many ways unless grace assists. This shows, moreover, the function of the law. It makes people guilty of transgression and forces them to take refuge in the gospel in order to be liberated and to be helped to overcome evil desires. It commands more than it liberates. It diagnoses illness, but it cannot cure it. That's him talking about the law and gospel distinction. In his battle with Pelagius, right? That's where we get our understanding of grace from a Protestant perspective today during that battle. The law and gospel was integral for us to understand grace properly. You see that? John Calvin, a great reformer, most of you probably know his name. He says, the contrast between law and gospel is to be understood, and from this distinction, we deduce that just as the law demands work, the gospel requires only that men should bring faith in order to receive the grace of God. You see the distinction for John Calvin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the person who can rightly divide law and gospel has reason to thank God, for he is a true theologian. This was very important in the life of Luther. C.H. Spurgeon, when applying the law and gospel distinction in a sermon, said that the law kills, the gospel makes alive. The law strips, and then Jesus Christ comes in and robes the soul in beauty and in glory. Do you see the distinction there? He said that the law takes away life, and the gospel gives life. Sinclair Ferguson who in his book, The Whole Christ, if you've ever heard of that, that book is about what happens when you get the law and gospel distinction wrong, how bad it can go, and how to get back on track. Here's what he says. He says, a wrong view of the law and the gospel leads to a wrong view of God. What he's saying is if you don't understand the law and the gospel properly in scriptures, you won't get God right. You may apply law where you should be applying gospel and gospel where you should be applying law and thus lose both of them. Do you see that? And then finally, a, a brother pastor of mine named Tom Hicks Jr. He's a theologian and a pastor at Clinton, Louisiana. He said that there is no more important biblical distinction than the distinction between law and gospel. And what he's getting at here is the idea of the law and gospel as a hermeneutic. You can't read scripture properly if you do not understand this distinction between law and gospel. That's led to so many errors, even today and throughout history, where people want to make law gospel and gospel law. They want to add, to the, they want to add law to the gospel and make the law somehow gracious. They want to relax. You've met someone like that? They try to relax the commandments of God, and they become legalistic when they do that, don't they? And they feel justified in their works. Well, right distinction of the law and the gospel prevents that if you truly understand it. And like I said, the point to share all those quotes with you is to show that this is not new, but this, is, this needs to be recovered in so many of our churches. And so with that said, what is the law and the gospel biblically speaking? That's church history. What is it biblically speaking? Let's look at our first point, the law and the gospel. And for this point, I'm really going to use other verses. We're going to really get into our text in point two, but I'm going to go ahead and read our text so that you have it in your mind as we work through these other scriptures. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And please follow along with me as I read down to verse 24. This is God's word. 
It says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, what may not be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given that says, even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the book of Hebrews is not really a book or really even a letter. It's a sermon. In fact, if you were to read this thing, if you were moderately, you know, speedy reader, you can actually read it without stopping or meditating front to back in about 45 minutes, which is typically how long people preach these days. But it's really a sermon. And what was the purpose of this sermon? What's the context of this book? This sermon was, was preached and written initially to a, a body of believers who were primarily Jewish. And what was happening, think about Paul in Galatians, what was happening is some of them were wrestling with this idea and some of them straight up apostatized back to Judaism. And so this sermon was preached to really show that, that Christ is better than that old covenant system. Do you see that when you read through Hebrews? It's comparing Christ to that old covenant system because it was trying to prevent people from apostatizing and going back to that works-based religion. And it was showing that Christ is better. Not only is he better, he's actually the fulfillment of the old covenant system. He's the, it's the type-antitype relationship. And so the author here is following the same thing. And here in chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, he's contrasting these two great mountains, which in analogy form reveals a distinction between the law as a covenant and the gospel as a covenant. And so remember what I said, that the law and the gospel is this biblical idea about these two great covenant heads, Adam and Christ, and how the natural and spiritual economies that flow from these two representatives impacts the people under each economy. And so let's look at this idea in the scripture. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. And we'll work our way down all the way to verse 21. Verse 12 says, there is ju- there just, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, you see that? And death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. And this is the idea of federalism or or federal representation. And what that idea, actually two ideas came out of that. The first one is called realism. Have any of you heard of that before? Realism was really made popular by Jonathan Edwards. I'm sure you've heard of his name before. And it's the idea that we all sin, right? Going back to verse 12, we all sin because we were really in the loins. We were the seed of Adam. So that's how we sin. And what happens when Adam sinned? He received guilt, condemnation, and pollution. That's why the scriptures call us over and over again sinners. So we, we got that guilt and that pollution because we were really in the loins of Adam. That's a very complicated system. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but that's just one idea behind this verse. The other one, which I think is correct, 
is the idea of federalism. And that's what I hold to as a covenant theology term, but it's the idea of federalism. It actually says that Adam represented all of humanity. So we get what Adam got, gave us, right? And he represented us when he sinned. He brought condemnation in the world, which we're going to see here in a second. And he brought pollution in the world. That's why David can say, in sin did my mother conceive me in Psalms 51. So people typically have an issue with this, right? When they're first studying federalism, they say, well, that's not fair. Why does Adam get to represent me? But I've never met a sincere Christian who has an issue with this when it's applied to Christ. Not a single sincere Christian will get to heaven and say, why does Christ get to represent me? I don't think it's fair. But praise be to God. We don't serve a God who's focused on fair. He's focused on his glory and our good. And so that's the idea that I believe. I think this verse 12 is talking about this idea of federalism or federal headship and how it's applied. Look at verse 13. It says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And so you see that. You see, death reigns through human history because of what Adam did in the garden. And even if you don't believe in federalism, that's clear representation, right? Adam did something that impacted the whole of humanity. This was also at the heart of the debate between Pelagius and, and Augustine. Pelagius said, no, men aren't sinners by virtue of Adam's sin. Augustine said, no, they have to be because of what the scriptures teach. And so that's the idea. He represented us and he brought guilt and pollution into the world. But look at the contrast starting in verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So do you see the contrast there? Adam's death or Adam's sin rather brought death into the world. For the entire world. But there is life that is eternal life in Christ if you come to him by faith. And it continues in verse 16. But the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. But for it, sorry, for if because of one man's trespass, Death reign through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life from that one man, Jesus Christ? And so that's, again, the idea of federal representation. You see these two great covenant heads. One is representing humanity through his covenant. The other is representing humanity through his covenant. One's a covenant that takes life. One's a covenant that gives life. Do you see that? That's the law and the gospel. And the idea here of representation, Adam's trespass represents and presents death for all men. Yet Christ's righteous action represents and presents life for all who come to him. Look finally at verses 18 through 21. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came, into, came in to increase the trespass, 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see the uses of those words. Condemnation, contrasted versus justification. Condemnation in Adam, justification in Christ. You see the word sinner, sinners in Adam, pollution and guilt. Those who are made righteous in Christ. Do you see Paul contrasting law and gospel here throughout this text? That's the idea of the law and the gospel. The law and gospel contrast is that in Adam we receive inherently both guilt, which brings condemnation, and pollution that makes us sinners. Yet in Christ as our representative, we receive mercy leading to justification and spiritual renewal and regeneration by the Holy Spirit that makes us righteous in this. We're going through this process, if we're Christians, of sanctification, where we can actually keep God's commandments, not perfectly, but really and faithfully. That's how Christ infuses and renews life in us through his sacrifice. And that's the law and the gospel contrast. And so if you want to make this in some, see this in summary mode, biblically speaking, you don't have to turn here, but listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It says, for as in Adam all die, cut and dry, this is Paul, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's the law and gospel distinction. Adam has a covenant that takes life because we're sinners. Not a bad covenant, but it's not good for us because as our brother said when we were going through our worship this morning, I mean this, this evening, we're not good. And so that covenant is not our friend, but the gospel covenant, the covenant of grace, the new covenant gives life. So I want you guys to just make, bring that point home. That's generally speaking the law and gospel and the law and gospel distinction. Does that make sense? Let's look at one other text to bring this point home. Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 through 26. Let's look quickly at this. I want to introduce a new term to you. Maybe not introduce it, but in this sermon. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? This is the Mosaic law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing the children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, she is our mother. See, Paul here again is contrasting the idea of a life-giving covenant by calling Jerusalem a mother who bears life, um, gives life to her children and bears children of freedom and a life-taking covenant, calling it Mount Sinai, a covenant that bears children of slavery. Do you see that? There's also another contrast, allegorically, typologically, of the law and the gospel. Remember what I said. The law and gospel contrast is not between the old covenant and the new covenant. So what is Paul talking about here? Because he's talking about Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, right? That's the old covenant. 
Well, let me introduce you guys a term that's called republication. And maybe you've heard this before. But this is an idea that is not new. It was taught by all the reformers, particularly the Puritans and the Dutch Reform and the Reformed Baptists. But it was taught by them. And this idea of republication means that the Mosaic Covenant, which is referenced here when Paul is alluding to Mount Sinai, has in some way the Adamic demands republished on it. Does that make sense? So it was republished. And it doesn't mean this is a new covenant of works. It just means like the spirit of that covenant was republished in this covenant. Let me prove that to you biblically real quick. What does it say here? It says that Mount Sinai, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, produced what? Children of slavery. Well, that's what Adam did, didn't he? When he brought sin to the world. Romans 6 says, teaches that those who commit habitual sins are slaves to sin. And so this is the same idea here in the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant could not produce righteousness. So the covenant of works was in a sense republished on it. Same thing. Think about the sacrificial system if you've read any of that stuff. Well, what did they have to do to make atonement? That was this intricate system of how they had to make all of these sacrifices, the priests, how far you can go inside of the, the Holy of Holies to make atonement, all these ritualistic works for atonement. And that's also what, looks, that Adam, what Adam's covenant looks like. He had to do certain things, don't eat the fruit, to stay in right standing with God. What's the, what happened the moment he ate the fruit? God came down and pronounced judgment because that covenant was unforgiving. And so this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, was this idea of it was the, the, the covenant of works was republished within the old covenant system, specifically the Mosaic covenant. Let's look secondly, briefly, at the law and gospel contrast again with all of that in mind as we pull all those texts forward, specifically in Galatians. Let's finally look at our text, looking at verse 18 in chapter 12 of Hebrews. It says, for you have not come to what may not be touched. I'm sorry, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given that says, even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And it doesn't explicitly state it here. But this is Mount Sinai, which we just read about in Galatians 4. How do we know that? Let's turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. I know you guys are going through that book. We won't read all of it for the sake of time. But let's look at a few comparative verses. Exodus 19. Verse 2 says that the people, after leaving Egypt, were settling in Sinai. And looking at verse 10 through 13, we'll see some comparisons to our text here in Hebrews 12. It says that the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long, a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. 
And so do you see the similarities here? This is also the mountain that cannot be touched. Look at verses 16 through 19. It says, on the morning of the, of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of Kiln, and the, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So you see the comparisons there again. There's darkness and gloom and the terror of the manifest presence of the Lord. And so the, going back to our text in Hebrews 12, the mountain here referenced is Sinai. And that's important because that's the same mountain that Paul referenced in Galatians 4 as a mountain of slavery. You see that? But look at verse 20. It says in Hebrews 12, 20, that they could not endure the order that was given to them. Even, even if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So here's what I want you to see, two points. Why could they not endure the order given to them? Why do you think? Think about that. And think about what it said. It says, even a beast shall be stoned. Does it make any sense? Is a beast a moral agent? It's not. Animals are not under the moral economy of God in the same way of humans. One, they're not rational. If they're not rational, they don't have any commandments to keep like we do. Therefore, they're not guilty. So why can a beast touch the mountain which represented the presence of God? I submit to you that it's because of the indelible holiness of God. Even though beasts could not be formally called sinners, all animals, all of the cosmos, all of the universe was impacted by the fall of Adam. And they were under the curse. And God is so holy that nothing that is not purely holy can come into his presence without satisfaction. And so the holiness of God is why even a beast couldn't touch it. And think about the people of Israel. If a beast who's not a moral agent couldn't touch it, how, more, how much more can we not come into the presence of the living God? And that's what the law covenant does. It requires not just obedience, not good obedience, not well-meaning obedience, perfect obedience. And if you cannot produce perfect obedience, this is what you get. You get the manifest presence of God in all of its holiness and its fear. That's what will happen on judgment seat for those who do not know Christ. If you cannot endure it, you need a substitute. You see that? And so they could not bear it because they were not holy. Not in the sense that God requires for life under that covenant. Secondly, I want us to see something. Also, in verse 21, it says, even Moses trembled. Moses trembled. Why would Moses tremble? Moses was a godly man. He was a humble man, right? He was the man that God chose to be the mediator between him and his people, right? So why did Moses tremble in the presence of God? 
Because, brothers, even the best of sinners can take no solace in doing good works for obedience. We need a substitute. Do you see that? But praise be to God. Look at verse 22. We are not required to go to Sinai or the law covenant in Adam for life. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Mount Zion was a representation of the city of God, Jerusalem. And in the city of God rested the temple of God, where he, his presence were, where he met his people. Psalms 125 says that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, his presence, from, time for, from this time forth and forevermore. And we know that this is spiritual Jerusalem because chap, um, verse 23 of chapter 12 tells us that this is heavenly Jerusalem. And it contains angels, believers who've died, and God. So here, here's my question. How do we possess spiritual Jerusalem? Is it not through the works of Christ? Is it not through the atoning works of Christ? Mount Zion here typologically reveals the gospel. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection and his ascension, he brings forth life. He becomes that substitute So when we go to Mount Zion, we can bear it because Christ has already borne our sins on a cross. We can come into the manifest presence of God without trembling because of what Christ has already done. We could not do it under the old system. We could not do it according to our own works, but we can if we come clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. Sinai is typologically representing the law as an immovable means to life, and it fully releases God's presence and his wrath on all who are not pure and blameless. Mount Zion represents a fully forgiving God and allows all who trust in Jesus to come to him. And so do do you go to the Father through Christ, or do you try and approach the Father based on your own merits? I do not care, more importantly, God does not care your pedigree. He does not care how how well catechized you are. He does not care what your parents did for you in faith. He does not care how well you can preach the gospel. He does not care how well you obey him. He does not care because his holiness is impartial. Think about Uzzah. What happened when he touched the ark? He could not live because God cannot reduce his holiness. You cannot go to God based on your own merits, period. That's the law and gospel contrast. If you try, you will be under a work, a covenant for life, and you will die. But if you go to Christ, you will receive life, eternal life, and you will live. That's the contrast. So we've seen the law and the gospel. We've seen the contrast through multiple texts. Now let's look finally as we close at how we apply this to our lives in the redeeming love of Christ. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, after the author says that the believers have come to Mount Zion, he says that you've also come to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember what the blood of Abel did. What happened in Genesis 10? Cain murdered his brother. And God came down, his presence, and he said, the blood of your brother speaks to me about what you've done, Cain. What did the blood say? It accused Cain, rightfully so, of murder. It said murderer, murderer, and he was a murderer. He killed his brother. The blood was correct, but it could only accuse. It's like the law. It only accuses criminals rightly. You see that? God's law rightly viewed accuses you of your sin. Much more the spirituality of the law. Even if you think, I've never cheated on my wife. No man will be able to convince me that he's never lusted. And if you've done that, not just in that moment, apart from Christ, you're condemned forever. That's how inflexible the law covenant is. And so the, but the blood of Christ is not like the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel only accuses rightly. But what does the blood of Christ do? It excuses and covers sin. That's what the blood of Christ does for you. It covers your sin. It redeems you. It makes you righteous and it treats you as righteous. It covers you before the Father so you can stand. That's the new covenant. That's the grace of Christ for you. His blood is not like the, better, uh, the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word. Abel's blood will only accuse you. Rightly so, because you're guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. But Christ's blood comes to you and says, forgiven of your guilt. That's why we must go to Christ. And here's what's important. Here's how we apply this to our lives. We must also follow the example of Christ which is meant to be, which is meant for us to be how we live our lives. And so as we apply the law and the gospel to our lives, remember this, these concepts. Law covenant takes life and demands perfect righteousness. Gospel covenant gives life and rests on the perfect righteousness of Christ. So how do we apply this to our lives? As we close, think with me about two people. There's a man, and this is a godly man. This is a straw man. I'm not, making, not having anybody in mind. But this is a godly man, faithful Christian, sincere Christian. And he has a job. It's a hard job. It's not hard in the sense of he can't do it from an intellectual perspective or a physical perspective. It's hard because he is a faithful believer. And he works around us in a secular environment. Maybe some of you, especially some of you engineers, experience this. But he works in this secular environment, and it's hard They make it difficult for him to do his job because he won't cut corners. He won't lie. He only tells the truth in his job. And it puts him behind the eight ball. Maybe he's even been passed up from some promotions because he won't play ball with his bosses. You see that? You've met somebody like that? Maybe that's been you. But this day, this man has had a particularly difficult day. And he couldn't get all of his work done. He didn't get a lunch break. He's frustrated. He's hungry. He's tired. And on his way home, all he is ready to do is just collapse and rest from this very difficult day. And what happens is when this man comes into his home, instead of seeing a clean home and a well-put-together family, his wife looks a mess because she's been dealing with kids all day. 
and the kids look a mess. They're not clean. One kid has a dirty diaper running across the room. So he's frustrated. He's more exasperated. He's more stressed after this difficult day. And he goes into the kitchen. Even worse, no food is prepared for him. He didn't get a lunch break. So he's hungry and he's tired and he's frustrated. And he responds in sinful anger to his wife. And he berates her. He even says things that he doesn't really mean. You stay home all day. This house should never look this way. How hard is your job, really? I am at home. I'm at, I'm at work working my behind off, and you're here, and the house looks this way. What have you been doing all day? And his family is discouraged, and he has now come to his home. Do you see what this man has done? He is requiring perfect righteousness or his version of righteousness for right behavior from himself. He's putting himself in the position of God. If you do this, you will get love from me or life from me. He's not applying the gospel. But then he remembers the law as a covenant, and it requires perfect obedience for life, and he's humbled. You see how that's applied to his heart? He sees the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the law strictly speaking. Well, I didn't perfectly tell the truth. No, I didn't lie, but I didn't perfectly share the truth today at my job. And now this man has been humbled. And what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't stay there because that would just bring guilt and shame. He runs to Jesus. And in Christ, he sees what Christ has done for him. And not only is his heart humbled, it's encouraged. So now he goes to his wife, sometimes with tears, in this instance with tears. And he asks for her forgiveness. And he says, I'm sorry for the way I treated you in this family. I came home and I expected something that wasn't promised for me. But I did not love you all like Christ loves the church. So he's repented now because of the law has humbled him. And the gospel has produced life in him. You see that. And what does he do? He doesn't just say it with words. He helps his wife clean up the house. And he cleans the kids up. He even goes into the kitchen and makes dinner for his family. That's the law and the gospel applied to this legal heart with these, ex- these lawful expectations, these unrealistic expectations. The law humbled him, and the gospel applied made him alive to do good works according to Christ's righteousness, not his own. And he met his family, even though he had a hard day. He met his family where they were, in their filth, in their wickedness, in their mess, That's how you apply the law and the gospel to a legal spirit. But some of you aren't legal in that way. Some of you are more tender. You have very tender consciences. You feel everything. Are any of you like that? You feel everything. And so think with me about a woman. And this woman has a very tender heart and a tender conscience. And what this often leads to is that she compares herself to other women. A lot. She sincerely desires to be godly and to be a good wife and to be a good mom and to be a good Christian, discipling other women. But she doesn't do this perfectly, and that causes her to doubt. And it even causes her to compare herself to other women. And what she says is something like this If only if I were like these women, then this. 
If only I were like these women or this woman, I would be more godly. If only, if, if only if I was like these women, my kids would be better. If only if I looked or acted like these women or this other woman, my husband would love me more or I would be appreciated more, right? And this works with single women and single men. If only if I was more godly like this person, then maybe I can find a spouse. Maybe God is not giving me this because I'm not like these other people. Do you have a tender conscience that way? Or you're always comparing yourself to others? Let me encourage you in this. Jesus died for you. And his death for you represents for you as your covenant head that you are perfectly loved. There is no reason to compare yourself. You have come to Mount Zion and to Christ. There's no more you have. You have this possession. You have Christ as your possession. There's no more you can add to yourself to make Christ love you more. Do you believe that? That's the gospel. That's the beauty of it. Nothing more for you today. Finished. To Telestai. It's over. You are loved. Because you have come to Christ Jesus. And so rather than coveting a better you, do this instead. Go to Jesus and see what he says about you. Isaiah 44, 22 says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. This is what you receive when you come to Jesus, his redeeming love. Let's pray.